I'll try not to screw it up too badly. Not, not, uh, yeah, that's impossible on this podcast. <laughs> All right, man, go for it. In 1955, Frank Sinatra released, released his... Let me do that one more time. Okay, all right. You did screw it up. We really didn't use it. Oh, I know. I win. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Now you're screwed. We're not going to do that like 20 minutes in, just so you know. Yeah, no, all it's right. it's over after all this right, intro. All right, sounds good. All right. Should I go? Go for it. In 1955, Frank Sinatra released his third album with Capitol Records, The We Small Hours. He had already gone through two wives and multiple failures, and now he was back on to success. In The We Small Hours is one of the first concept albums. Some people call it the first. That's hard to prove. Uh, But it is a song of a dejected lover, 16 tracks of various composers, songs mostly from the 1930s. Uh, And that's all I've got to say about it right now. Welcome to everyone's favorite show, Louder Than Sound. Our first and only question for the contestants is... What's louder than sound? Theoretical noise particulates from the 15th dimension? What's louder than sound? Uh, nothing, Alex, because of course this is a theoretical question. What's louder than sound? What is two brothers, who are mostly similar, but sometimes dissimilar taste in music, asking each other to listen to and absorb some of their favorite music albums based on idiosyncratic themes that they likewise force each other to consider? That's louder than sound. Welcome once again to Louder Than Sound. I'm Charlie, joining me is my brother Jake, and we've got a very special guest with us today. As Tim Rebers, he is a professional singer, actor, and composer in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And even though he will not be talking about opera today, he is an opera singer, which we thought was a really great thing to bring on the show. He is also an old college buddy of mine, so it's great to hear his voice and see his... Well, I get to see his face. You don't get to see his face, but (laughs) I do. While we're making this, and you can just listen to his sweet, buttery uh, baritone talking about Frank Sinatra's In the Wee Small Hours. Yeah. This also kicks off a new theme. That's right. Jake, take it on the theme. Yeah, so uh, this this little cycle here that we have going is a theme of pre-1955 music. So we're talking either at the moment that the album became a thing or just before it. And so maybe uh, we'll find out about how Frank Sinatra's In the Wee Small Hours uh, sort of uh, carterized that that movement. Um, I know that I've heard about Frank Sinatra in the past that he he popularized the actual album. Um, and he did that by putting out one like every three or four months or something like that. <laughs> and they started selling like hotcakes. And um, it, it was a movement away from exclusively 45s and exclusively singles. Right. Um, but it's, and it's also interesting because it, it's, it's happening at the same time as the rise of rock and roll. Right. Right. So we're right at that time. Rock is just sort of breaking in 54, 55. The first songs are, you know, the early 50s. But it's those two things coming together at the same time makes it an interesting time. And it's interesting that Tim picked an album. It was 1955, right? Am I remembering the exact year? 
was right right then and there, right when this is happening. That's right. And so there have been a couple rock and roll songs and singles out. I think like Ike Turner and the 88s had what's now considered the first rock and roll song um, in maybe 52 or 53. And Elvis was just, I mean, he was knocking on the door in 1955, 1956. He was about to become massively popular. And then the, the album, as we know it, would kind of take off. Um, but, you know, right at that time, we have, we have Frank Sinatra. So, uh, Tim, why don't you tell us a little bit about old Frank? Yeah, so um, the long play record was invented in 1948, but wasn't really taking off until right around this time, like the early to mid-50s. And uh, the reason it's called an album is because previously they would have the um, multiple 78s all um, like about one to two songs on a side, but they would like bind them together almost like a book. Mm. Right, like, could a, have, like a photo album. It was right, like a photo album. album. I love that. But that's exactly, and then it's weird that we only think of albums as like a single disc, mm -hmm. so it's like completely <laughs> obviates the point of the name. But anyway, I just, that's my nerdy thing about it. But um, yeah, so prior to that, even the idea of an album was mainly just like a, a bunch of singles strung together. Um, frequently weren't recorded in the same time period. It would just be like pre-existing stuff that they would just sort of like, uh, now that's what I call music sort of thing, just sort of like slap, <laughs> smush together. But um, Sinatra Well, that's was... something you see a lot through the 50s and even into the 60s. Yeah. Single slowly. It's probably, the, it's probably about the late 60s, early 70s before the single become secondary to the album like absolutely you know yeah you see a lot of those these collections of singles and stuff showing up even into the beatles you see that in they're really totally, totally. Yeah. well and that's one of the other um artists that i was thinking about for this podcast was bing crosby but mm. he was at a slightly earlier time where he almost didn't have albums until they were kind of like cobbled together after the fact Right. A lot of times until he was recording in the 50s and 60s as well. Um, they just sort of took stuff that he like did live on the radio and then sort of cobbled it together. But anyway, um, the Sinatra album is definitely one of the first sort of concept albums as far as these were all recorded together intentionally. Um, Nelson Riddle, who he worked with a lot at Capitol Records, was the... Uh, Con conductor and orchestrator arranger for all 16 tracks so he definitely created mm. sort of a cohesive sound for all of these songs despite the fact that they've got like 10 or 12 different songwriters mm. on the album i was going to ask you about um, that if they were if, they, if they were all recorded yeah. at the same time or not yeah they were all recorded within just a few uh weeks or months of okay. each other i think it was mainly like three recording sessions okay. like which is pretty that's pretty standard yeah standard but yeah um, I think February, March of 1955, and then it was released in April. I love the turnaround in old albums. You know, nowadays, oh my gosh, it's yeah. like a year and a half after you recorded, it finally comes out. I feel like, yeah, and like you, unless, you like, unless uh, you're surprised, drop it online. You know, right? All this stuff, yeah. They record it, and then like two weeks later, it's on the it's on the shelves. And this was so, back when they were 1950s technology. They were having to press the shellac still. Right, right. So it's like you would think it would take longer. No way. Give the people what they want. Though it's probably, at least partially, it was not as big of a deal of having everything released nationwide all at the same time. Yeah. You know, you'd get out, like, start getting out, you know, and, and release it in New York this week and release it in Boston next yeah. week and, you know, L.A. the week totally. after. That kind of thing. Definitely. 
So about Sinatra. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So what are we doing here, boys? Is this still me? <laughs> I, I, we thought, I thought it was still you, Tim. Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah, you gotta, Sorry. You got to tell, tell us about old, old Blue Eyes here. We need a little, oh, okay. need a little background. Well, what was he doing? Oh, he tantalized us with uh, tales of two ex-wives already. Yeah, yeah. so, so we, um, when Sinatra first got popular in the 40s, he was about 30, married with three kids, which is not how I think anybody thinks of Sinatra, especially because no. he looked so young, so rail thin. He looked like he was probably 20, but he was actually, yeah, a decade older than he probably looked. And uh, so he got quite famous and then kind of slumped in his career by 1947 or so. Hmm. Um, and he got divorced from his first wife, and he almost immediately married Ava Gardner. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and that was a tumultuous relationship that uh, then crashed and burned within a few years um, by the early 50s. Um, but he sort of turned it around with his first couple Capitol Records albums. Um, I'm trying to remember what the names of them are. I should have them right here. But um, this is one of my jobs is looking things up that we really should have looked up yeah. earlier. But oh, awesome. Yeah. So I'm, I'm on it. You just keep talking. That's all he does. Yeah. Now, Tim, now Tim, Tim, had he been on Columbia prior to this? Yes. His right. first, okay. his, he, he had a contract with Columbia that was apparently quite artistically restrictive. Oh. So um, <clears throat> he was basically just cranking out singles yeah. like we were talking about before. They were very much in like sort of a, a status quo mindset. And he... Uh, uh, that was kind of part of his slump. He got dropped by uh, by Columbia. Oh, they dropped and, him. And, um, yeah, I think it was kind of a mutual Ooh. dropping of each other. But, yeah, def- <laughs> there's definitely, he was kind of considered a little bit washed off by the late 40s, yeah. early 50s. Oh, sure. And so he um, he got hooked onto uh, Capitol. And at the time, it was sort of like they were taking a little bit of a chance on him. But because he was sort of a little bit spoiled goods, he had a lot more artistic freedom to sort of do what he wanted. And so even those first couple albums were kind of more like, I would say they're not exactly um, concept albums, but they're almost like recitals, if I can use that sort of classical term, where it's sort of like he's got a theme Mm. that he's doing. So he's got like the... A couple um, albums like the songs for swinging lovers. They swung songs for young lovers and swing yep. easy are his two. Swing albums. easy, right? Yeah. They both yeah. came out in '54. Right. So this songs was for, right songs before for swimming, songs for swinging lovers. <laughs> songs for young lovers and swing easy. Songs for swinging lovers is the next one after in the whisper. Right. Exactly. And then after that, I think is only the lonely. So he kind of dips into these two wells a lot. This is a Sinatra throughout the '50s is like this kind of bipolar personality where half of his albums would be these sort of like up-tempo, big band dance charts. And then he would go to the other side with these really kind of melancholy... He he often referred to himself as like just a saloon singer. So he would have these sort of like stereotypical uh, torch songs and Mm -hmm. a lot of like, like slow, aching kind of tunes that he would put in an entire album like this one. Um, 
So it actually worked. It turned it turned his career around right around the same time that he was releasing those first two albums with Capitol. He also was making movies again. He won an Oscar for From Here to Eternity. And mm-hmm. he went from kind of the bottom to the top again. And at the same time, divorced Ava Gardner, <laughs> which I don't think was his... Uh, his intention. <laughs> he was like, yeah, we more, did, more she, she, she did what she wanted to do. Right. <laughs> he was like, we can make it work, baby. <laughs> like, she's not even standing there. She's gone. She's already out the door. Yeah. Where'd you so go? So anyway, that 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 leads to a lot of people putting some psychology or kind of sitting sitting in the psychiatrist's chair, um, and and calling this the Ava album mm. that this is him working through his his uh second marriage sort of out loud in this album and whether or not that's true it certainly is sort of an artistic um you know it's it's what all artists do is use their lives as inspiration for their art and kind of what I think is great about this album is it's not a pity party album. It's not him like crying in his beer. It's him taking that heartache and sort of making something meaningful out of it. Mm-hmm. Okay. And um, I don't know how far into the album you want me to get, but there's a lot of stuff I can talk about lyrically with the songs that he chooses. And I'll just say one thing, which is the first two to three tracks in the album I find interesting. I was just noticing it the other day when I was listening. There, uh, the texts are in the second person. So the first song in the We Small mm. Hours, he's saying you instead of I or me. Mm. You lie awake and think about the girl. Yeah. And then the next track is uh, Mood Indigo. You ain't been blue. No, 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 unless you've had that Mood Indigo. And even the third track um, starts with Take a Look at Yourself... Um, so it's it, it's almost like inviting the audience, the listener, into his heartache and sort of like sharing it with him rather than just like listening to somebody mope and whine well, a lot. So I, I like that. Yeah. And along those lines, I feel like uh, as a counterpoint to that, I feel like he's sort of accusing everyone of not being able to be as sad as him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so sad. He's like, you don't know how it feels. Mood indigo in particular. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You haven't had that mood indigo. No, well, you might have had mood blue maybe, or mood purple. Like maybe, you know? Maybe mood to blue. No. Maybe not maybe indigo. That's okay. right. <laughs> Code but indigo. It, well, this seems like a good time to transition over to our thoughts on the albums. Um, so, like I said, I had not listened to this one before. I, I have several Frank Sinatra albums. Some of those when I first got, got my first turntable in college, I think. It was some, you know, busted up old junk thing. And I would just go and buy whatever, you know, 50-cent records at the thrift store seemed interesting. And I ended up with a lot of, like, Frank Sinatra was one you could always find. I ended up a lot with, a lot with him and a lot of Nat King Cole oh, and yeah, stuff like sure, that. for sure, for sure. And they're just, they're fun things to listen to on a scratchy old, not very good record. You're like... It sounds better somehow. Like, yes, definitely. It's bad quality. It shouldn't be good. Anyway, this one was not one that I'd come across. Um, but I overall enjoyed it. My my first thing I noticed was that it's surprisingly long for an album. From mm. It's 16 tracks. It's about 50 minutes long, which wow. I'm surprised they could even fit it on a single LP yeah, at the time. That's close to a double. It's close to I a was, double, yeah. And I did look I this up. I was reading about this. I was curious if... I mean, I'll let you go over over the time because I looked at some of this, but I'm sure you know more. Um, because I did look it up because I was curious if you know some of these were bonus tracks added on later, and they weren't. It was originally 16 tracks. I was looking at Discogs. So you you would give your point here, Tim, and then I'll give my. Oh yeah, I was just I was reading up on some of the technology 
of these new um, LP records. And one of the things that they had figured out how to do even before this was basically how to cram more time on the record by just squeezing the grooves closer together. And I wonder, like, you lose some of the high reproduction fidelity and um, especially there's there's less um, dynamic contrast ability because the grooves, the wider... Um, the grooves are the, the more amplitude you get in the sound, so you can actually get a louder sound. Um, so I wonder if maybe they did a little bit, but it's with the, it's right on the edge, so mm. I don't think they had to do a lot. They just really, there was no extra space on that record. It's like yeah. crammed in. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I did read, um, it was released in different formats, and I don't know how close together these came out, because it did, it did come out on a 12-inch, just all 16 songs crammed on there. Wow. It also released was released on two 10-inch records, 10-inch LPs, and mm-hmm. it also came out on four 7-inches. So this is like different, and I think the 7-inches was a 45, and 45 is better sound quality because you got better. Yeah. You have basically more more space to to do it. So I that was just interesting to me is how long it was. You just don't see albums that long usually. You know, so they're they're more like 30 minutes. You see a lot of 30 minute or even 20 minute albums from the period. Yeah. Um, we got a lot of tasteful, sad, swing arrangements. Mm. You know, I don't know if this is exactly jazz. There's no, you know, there's no improvisation in this. It's more of an orchestral sound, something you'd hear in movies of the period a lot, too. You got a lot of uh, strings in there. You got a lot of, at least, like, harps and stuff bringing us in there. Um, but, of course, at the very center of this album is the rich, buttery, swamp, <laughs> velvety smooth crooning. Of Frank Sinatra as crooning as arguable finest right here, you know. <laughs> it probably so is the, the height so of the, the height of the crooner is happening. Oh right yeah, now. absolutely. And I don't mean that to you know make fun. He's like, it's one of those things you just not everybody can sing like that. Like oh my it's gosh, not, that, that's a special thing to be able to sing like that. I'm just gonna interject really quick. I oh, think no. that Sinatra this album right in this sort of five-year window i think this is like peak sinatra for a couple reasons his voice over the decades started to decline with you know his less than healthy living a lot of drinking and smoking (laughs) and so he's like yeah his like lyric baritone keeps dropping into this like kind of rasp but I feel like we should make a PSA for crooners, you know? Right, please. <laughs> about, about stay away from the scotch. Stay away from the scotch and the cigarettes and the cigars. Yeah, but... Yeah, but you want to be crooning in your old age, you gotta, you got to stop this stuff now. Yeah, right. but, does the, but does, does the scotch and cigarette make the crooner? Is it a chicken and egg sort of thing? Uh, yeah, you know, it might be. Yeah. It's, it's I mean, maybe, definitely one maybe of those, you start off you, hot, you start off strong, but then you drop it once you become a crooner, or what do you, you do? All, you all turn into Tom Waits by the end. You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I was, I was just going to mention that, like, so this, this album is, like, he's not old yet, so he's still got a lot of that, like, youthful vigor in his voice. And like you said, it's really creamy, buttery, whatever, you know, yeah, insert oh, yeah. your, your food uh, <laughs> adjective. Mm. But he's got a, just enough of his, you know, like, hard-living life. He's had a couple downturns in his careers that, mm-hmm. like, the, the songs really... He's got that much more mature uh, presentation and performance of the the words and the music than he did even a decade earlier. It's a little bit more by the book, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Tim, was he in, was he in Vegas yet during this period, or was that coming still? I, I don't think so. I think yeah, that's still that's coming, and that is 
that's so difficult with Sinatra is like he really reinvented himself so many different times right. that like by the end he was almost a caricature of what he was doing earlier. But at this point, I think he. Oh, yeah, okay. Sorry. I at this point, I think he's still really just in recording mode uh, and very much like a, a movie star as yeah. well. Yeah. 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 yeah I can see that. So I, uh, I overall liked it. My, my biggest complaint is probably that it gets a little long and it runs together. Mm. It ends up feeling kind of one note, which, I mean, that was part of that concept album is it's meant to be a sad album of sad songs. And some of these are really amazing standout tracks. Those first two, In the, in the We Small Hours of the Morning and Wood Indigo, I think were my two favorite. Those got me into them. Like, oh, man. It's going to be all killer, no filler. <laughs> it gets 16 songs, 50 minutes. I mean... I think my patience runs out as I get older somehow. Like that feels like a long album for this, this for it to be this much of one mode. I do really like uh, what is this thing called love, which would have been the first track off the second side. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's not surprising that if you put a standout, you get the first track on the second side also. Um, but it did. It, it ends up feeling more like background music by the end rather than something I'd be actively listening mm. to. It feels more like something to set a mood. Do you want to have on in there during you know? I don't know. You wouldn't want it during a party. I don't know what you'd have it on during a funeral. No, I don't know. You have it on. You have it on when you're when you can't sleep and it's two in the morning. Yeah, oh, which is yeah. I think why it's yeah. so long. You know yeah. what I mean? And or if someone a just like and you're wondering where your wife is. Yeah, that is cold beside you. That kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. We, we've all been there. You know what I mean? <laughs> once or twice. What's well, that? You know, once or twice. Ava Gardner was involved. That's all I'll say. <laughs> So, I did like it overall. It wasn't, yeah, I most amazing album of all time. I give it a, a one. I thought it was a solid, mm. enjoyable mm. listen yeah. to. That was a little lower than I was expecting, to be honest. Okay. But, it's, you know, it's it's in the positives, so I'll take it. That's right. That's right. Absolutely <laughs> in the positives. Yeah, so for those at home, we work on a negative five to five point scale. I love this scale, by the way. It's I know, like, scale. I'm kind of, I'm, like, geeking out over here, but I think it's genius. <laughs> We came up with it for our, our prior podcast, Boy Versus Dylan, where we wanted to make sure that if they released an album that was terrible, they didn't like have more points than other. Like you couldn't just get points for releasing something bad. Yeah. If it was really bad, it actually took points away. That's right. You actually it hurt your career. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it seems like it just seems like a good scale. We want to keep music, so yeah. So we're gonna do that. We're gonna do that. Jake, give us give us some of your thoughts. All here. right. All right, will do. Uh, so, Tim, I have three kids um, in, ranging in age from um, 13 now to almost four, and uh, my kids think that this is Christmas music. <laughs> they will not be disabused of that notion. Uh, the, wow. The, the tyranny of the holiday music takeover has really gotten out of control. Does um, this mean this is like when Santa leaves you coal, you like sing these songs? No. It, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so when Santa doesn't bring you that one gift, you're like, you know, F you, Santa. <laughs> You can get that movie Indigo as we can. Right. When your Xbox is gone. <laughs> but uh, you know, aside from the lyrics, I can I can totally hear what they're hearing. You know, uh, dis- despite myself, um, the degree to which this style of light orchestral crooning, melancholy music mm-hmm. um, has come to resemble the exact feeling of 11 p.m. on Christmas Eve, like with a cocktail. In your mm. Like it's very uncanny to me. <laughs> um, well, Jake, you and I talked recently about kind of the waves of Christmas music and these like yeah. it's really important and the first wave we felt like was the Bing Crosby Frank Sinatra right 
right. time Nat period. King like, Cole, this, this very much, know, yeah. 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 The, the rest of the Rat Pack kind of got in on the on the action oh, there yeah. in the early '60s, um, and I think Sinatra became associated with the holidays because he had one of the first classic Christmas albums, Full Stop, which I I can't. Yeah. I know it's Christmas with Frank Sinatra or something like that, but. Um, I'm on it. Well, there is, there's definitely like a Christmas song war, like a, like a, an arms race of Christmas songs. Yeah. Because <laughs> I love this um, concept right now. Yeah. So uh, I will a elaborate. Violent Christmas. Um, um, so Bing Crosby obviously has um, White Christmas, which is firmly associated with him. Everybody records it, but it's kind of oh, yeah. his song, right? It's Irving Berlin's White Christmas, which, side note, um, right. Uh, after writing it, apparently Irving Berlin like came out of his office where he would write songs and like said to his secretary or something like, "I've just written the greatest song ever." Like, <laughs> well, and and okay. and, uh, and it and he was right because that is by far the highest selling single of right. all time. It's like yeah. way over a hundred million copies. Have been the sold. man knows what he wants. <laughs> but anyway, so this this arms race. So like Nat King Cole didn't write. The Christmas song, Chestnuts Roasting on an Open Fire, Mel Torme and another person who I'm blanking on did. But he was the first to record it, and that one is probably, like, the definitive version is the the Nat King Cole recordings of of that. So that's sort of, like, associated with him. And so Sinatra wanted a song that would be, like, his White Christmas. And um, so he got... um, some songwriters to write the Christmas waltz for him, which yeah. is the frosted window panes. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. So like every, every uh, crooner at the time, like they needed their signature song. Hey, crooners got a croon, you know? Exactly. Especially at Christmas time. They have to. And then like, once you have one, then you have to like next album you release, you're like, yeah. I got to have another one. That's like yes. one up, you know, Bing Crosby or whatever. But those I'm guys looking were... up Christmas songs by Sinatra is 1948. Okay, that's and he it. did kick that baby off with White Christmas. Yeah. Of course, you got Pretty, you you got to. It's a bold move there. You know, that's, <laughs> that's a drive-by. The, uh, the right there. He's like, uh, he's like, hey Bing, hold my beer. Check this out. <laughs> Uh, he didn't even say Christmas Waltz out here. It's not even. I, I don't think it was written yet. Okay. I think right. he he probably the album wasn't the smash success that he wanted. I mean, it could have been very successful, and Sinatra was such a perfectionist that like if it didn't sell as well as he wanted it to sell, then you know I have to do another one. Yeah. You have to write me a yeah. Well, those guys were right. Waltz. That's like that's how these guys are going to live forever for sure. Is yeah. Christmas. Oh yeah. Yeah. All right. So anyway, back to this non-Christmas album in the, <laughs> in the wee small hours. Um, I found the whole album to be just so darn moody. This poor lonely bastard. He's just he's just in the dumps, man. He's he's running out of ways to explain his feelings about it. Um, the one I was laughing at the hardest for that reason was uh, Deep in a Dream, where he explains mm-hmm. in painstaking detail his sad-ass cigarette smoking. Uh, like, <laughs> he's just, like, watching the smoke curl into the room, and he's chain-smoking. And, uh, Tim, I just want to let you know that Charlie and I talked in the last couple of episodes of this podcast of the concept of the utility of sad walking. Like, if you want to, you know, you go, you go for a sad walk. Um, you, oh, yeah, to, yeah, of course. You have, you have to have a certain type of music for that. And there's a lot uh, of sad walking going on during the pandemic. So. Oh, exactly. Right. A lot of sad walking. And uh, even though I'm not a smoker anymore, I'd like to add a new category, which is sad smoking. Yeah. You know, it almost makes me Sad wanna... sitting even, you know, sm- just sit, sit there and the, stare. The, the sad sit and smoke. Uh, yeah. It definitely wants to make me, makes me want to get a messy divorce and start smoking again. I don't know about you guys. <laughs> 
No, uh, nobody don't else. Don't go down the road, Jake. Don't go down that road. <laughs> uh, the wife is not in the room for that one. Um, and uh, to that point, uh, literally all these songs are some shade of extreme melancholy. Um, always about lost love and last night and if in the present at all, um, then exclusively about acute depression related to the lost love. Um, it's never set in the future. It's never particularly hopeful at all. Um, the closest he comes is on a song like I'll Be Around, in which the, quote, hopeful feeling is that maybe his old love's new love will fade or ditch her, and maybe then she'll come back? Right? I know, you know, it's like the pathetic anthem of the loser. Yeah. It's like, I'll still be here. Yeah, I'll Don't you worry. Yeah, which is not the same <laughs> but, as... But it's funny because it's, it's Frank frickin' Sinatra. I know. You know like, yeah, right, right. He could have any woman he wants except for that one. you Frank, okay? Don't worry. Avogadro's love... You've got, like, so many other choices. Oh, yeah. that just makes me think of... There's another great um, song that Sinatra sang that's quasi-biographical... Um, that's called I Want to Be Around. Um, okay. But that song is the exact opposite of I'll Be Around. It's saying, like, to your ex-lover that spurns you, I want to be around when your new lover dumps you so I can watch all of that happen. Ooh, like, it's a dang. great song. If you haven't heard Sinatra's <laughs> I Want to Be Around. And the, the, the biographical part about it is um, it's a Johnny Mercer song that was written partly about Sinatra and I believe his breakup with Ava Gardner. Oh, wow. And oh. then, like, Sinatra ends up recording it years later. Nice. So, anyway, nice. yeah, that's just a side note. Yeah, so uh, it's, it's you know, what he's singing about here on this album is not the same as hoping for new love or looking forward to anything. Uh, the narrator is just pining to be taken back by someone who clearly would be settling for him as, as second best or, you know, worse than that. Like, the rebound to the rebound would be, would be him. Um, and so, you know, I find this guy, uh, this kind of character he's playing on the whole to be a real tough hang. Who, who would want to, <laughs> who would want to sit around with saddled Frank when he's feeling this way, which apparently is like always on this album. Um, so my critique, my critique with this album is that it goes beyond, um, what you were talking about, Chaz. So it's just sounding samey. Um, it's very beautiful, um, but it does sound very similar from track to track. He repeats the same themes, um, which as I mentioned above are quite uniform. Um, but it's more of a referendum for me on how I expect albums to be on the whole as a music listener of my age and experience and how the structure of expressing oneself with a set of songs that comprise an album has evolved. So to my understanding, uh, maybe sometime past this, maybe, you know, we're talking Dylan, Beatles, Beach Boys, that kind of stuff. Like every major album by a major artist should have sort of an arc that includes at least something different for the listener to mark time with. Or you, know, <clears throat> you, you start the album off with this, and the second side starts with that. Um, you know, you need a banger or two, or at least that's kind of what I expect as a listener. Um, in the Wee Small Hours has zero bangers. I'm just going to go out and say that. There's, 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 no, there's no change in mood. There's no change in tempo. And for that reason, it just kind of slides in one ear and out the other for me after a bit. Um, no matter how sophisticated the songwriting is, which it is, or how lovely the strings sound, which they do, or how... Or how buttery the crooning. Well, I was going to say beguiling, uh, old oh, blue beguiling. eyes. beguiling. Ooh, that's know. a good one, too. You know what my favorite... I'll just say my favorite nickname for him. I don't know if you guys have yours, but the chairman of the board cracks me I, up. I, yeah, that's a good one. Somehow I knew that was going to be what you were going to say. Dude, somehow. what is up with... That's just so badass. The chairman of the board. I don't even know I what that know. means. Yes. <laughs> I want to oh, be the chairman of the board. I think it's just the fact that, like, he sort of had the personal charisma to like 
take over like where, wherever he is. He's like suddenly the leader. Yeah. He's like, but hey, also like baby. he kind of became this mogul. Hey, he's like so he actually became like a business mogul. But he's the CEO of life. Okay. Right. <laughs> of a certain weird, you know, good section of life. That's for sure. Uh, and so, uh, and I just have to mention my, my last thing about about it is I'm a huge Bob Dylan fan, obviously, um, having run half of the, the Bowie versus Dylan podcast. And uh, Frank Sinatra, like, one of my favorite things about Bob Dylan is that Frank Sinatra loved Bob Dylan somehow. Hmm. And, uh, and Bob and, Dylan loved Frank Sinatra. And fr- he did. And obviously, since he's done literally five albums of covers um, of Frank Sinatra songs um, that he sang. Um, but at... Uh, I don't know if you've seen this, Tim, but at his uh, Frank Sinatra's, it was like his 80th birthday TV celebration or something. They mm. had all these stars on and all that stuff, sing songs to him. He was almost dead. He was he was pretty close yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Bob Dylan closed the show uh, with a song that he had written um, from 19, 1962, um, oh, Restless Farewell. And it absolutely brought the house down. And Frank was like bawling in the front row and all this stuff. So I was... As time goes on here, I'm going to think of those two, you know, kind of kind of similar. Um, but Tim, I'm I'm pretty interested to hear not only why you chose this album, but what your listening experience is with it, and how you might okay. dif- how you differentiate between the songs. I'm a, hey, what? Go ahead. What's your rating here, Jake? Oh, I'm Maybe getting to it. Why don't you let me? Okay, talk. sorry. Whoa, whoa. <laughs> Back up. You know, let me let me just start over here. I'll start from the top. How's that, guys? <laughs> Um, I, I, <laughs> in 1955. Yeah, in 1955, I'm a, I'm a music therapist, and so I sing lots of old songs to a lot of elderly people. And Sinatra's, you know, he's way up there. Um, he's top five for for old people. They, people love. How's, how's your croon, Jake? How's your croon? Uh, my croon's okay. I sing my way, you know. Sometimes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, right. You know, you make me feel so young when I'm feeling chipper. It's a good one. Yeah, you try right. out the try the Sid Vicious version of My Way sometimes. No, see what, we don't, see, what, yeah, see what the old folks think. We don't need to bring him into this. Um, so <laughs> why Jay, would you do that? Yeah, why would you? We're talking. We're, we're, we're classy here. What are you doing? <laughs> the Vicious was many things, but classy was definitely not one of them. That's what I'm saying. That's why he. That's why he's classy with a capital K. <laughs> classy. Uh, so, uh, Tim, I'd like to hear how you, as another professional singing musician, appreciate Sinatra's choices and perhaps some of the subtleties that I'm missing. Mm. Um, I think the album is very lovely and very sad, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. But as an album, I give it a plus point five. Um, so, uh, although I love, you know, I, I, I do love some Frank. Like this, this, uh, this album just kind of just kind of trudges along for me after a time. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'd love to hear right. what you think about it. Okay, here we go. I'm going to try to, like, change your minds and even, if possible, shoot for revised upward scoring, but that may be a, a whoa, heavy lift. Whoa, 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 whoa. You're a guest here. <laughs> You're a guest here, sir. Just <laughs> sitting down in your easy chair and making myself at home. Who's the chairman of the board, baby? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. Not so Tim I... Reavers, I'll tell you that. <laughs> uh, all right, here's, here's my pitch for... Why and I agree that the the sort of monotone aspect of it thematically and musically is definitely something that um, keeps it from getting like full marks for me as well. Okay, but I think you sort of have to understand it from a almost a classical perspective of like leaning into the entire album as one giant song. Mm. Um, and and the, I'm gonna make a couple like very 
like nerdy music nerd sort of comparison. Quit, quit so apologizing for that. You came on our show. I, to yeah, talk come about on. This music. is this is this is nerd. <laughs> this is nerd heaven right here. You're insulting. I'm just. I'm, I'm giving it the alert. I'm not. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. You're also insulting all our listeners. If they weren't listening, they wouldn't be music right. nerds. Okay. All right. Great. So I'm not insulting anyone. I'm just saying it's happening. Anyway, I'm insulting. Um, you you can't so you can't fun. control okay. who you insult. Right. You can't I take control it, that. I take it all back. Let me okay. start over. Um, Schumann's Dichterliebe, written in 1848, okay, is yeah. a song of 16 songs. Notice mm-hmm. I said 16 really odd because it's the same oh. number of tracks on on this album. Um, and it's German for poet's love. But Dichterliebe is basically an album. Um, it's about a half-hour-long set of songs set to um, poetry by Heinrich Heine. And it's, it's about a love affair that goes wrong and the main character can come across really 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 because he's a poet because he's really in touch with his feelings and he's singing about mm-hmm. how he feels and Dichterliebe definitely has a lot of different moods to it there are some like um really angry songs and some really despairing songs and some sort of where he's lost in this um delusion of like oh my lover is still there i'm still with her which is a lot that why i kind of bring that up mm-hmm. um the other the other uh song cycle german song cycle is winterized by franz schubert written in 1828 i think um 27 or 28 i think it's 28 <laughs> um and that is 24 songs and it lasts over an hour an hour 20 usually um and again uh a lot of those, a lot of people can get down on that because it's, it ends up feeling kind of monotone. But my my other artistic comparison is uh, the cover of this in the We Small uh, Hour is this like almost monochromatic blue painting of Sinatra in a, a lonely street at night under a oh, street yeah. lamp. And I think if you imagine this album as sort of like a monochromatic painting where it's like shades of blue and each song is blue, but like they each have their own unique shade. So that's my, like my initial setting the table for what I'm about to say. That was really eloquent. Yeah, yeah that Thank really you. was. Yeah. Thank you. That yeah. Was, yeah, well done. I Great. still kind of think of Frank Sinatra as that guy at the party who's like in the corner sighing, hoping the girls notice how lonely he is and sad and come over and talk to him. And but, it works every time. If you're Sinatra. If you're Sinatra. If you're Sinatra. <laughs> Um, because your blue serge suit matches your eyes and your cigarette oh. smoking is just right and you actually have a voice like that. So um, then it works. <laughs> but And I, I get that. But I think in, a, in the hands of a lesser interpreter, a, a lesser singer, it, this set of songs would be unlistenable because it would yeah. just be going on okay, and on okay. and droning. So I think what happens is it's this magical combination of Nelson Riddle, who is the orchestrator and conductor, knowing Sinatra's voice and knowing how to deal with this material, and then Sinatra sort of breathing life into each song in a way that's sometimes unexpected. Um, And a little interesting side note, Nelson Riddle, who is younger than Sinatra, um, uh, arranged, started playing around with arranging and orchestrating in high school, and the first song that he did was, um, I think it was This Love of Mine, yeah, um, which is the last track on this, which is also um, 
co-lyric like lyrics are co-written by Sinatra the okay. last track of the album so it's sort of like one of these full circle things where Nelson Riddle um, and Sinatra are, are working together they make that the last track of their song it's the first track or the first chart that Nelson Riddle ever like attempted doing orchestrating on so there's a lot of sort of emotional uh, weight there but um, throughout the album Riddle uses these similar orchestral colors to create this sort of like it's not quite jazz it's not quite classical mm -hmm. which is what you guys were mentioning before this sort of hybrid mm -hmm. um where one of my favorite um uses of uh very distinct colors is the celeste or celeste um which is um an an instrument that's like a, a little keyboard, but it plays on glass bars instead mm -hmm. of strings. And most people will recognize it um, most famously from either the Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy from Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker or yeah. the opening of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. That like keyboard. That's also on Celeste. Oh, nice. I was thinking about Bjork. Bjork used it. Yep. Used it yeah. And it actually, it comes from like the French or Italian word for heavenly because it's got this kind of like twinkly stars in the sky feeling. And it just feels like it's got this perfect like quiet, like don't wake the rest of the house up kind of feeling mm. um and he uses that throughout along with the strings and the harp and something you know, like the low woodwinds and stuff like that um to just create this kind of evocative soft understated kind of tone and it's certainly oh <laughs> it certainly is um a little bit sort of monochromatic, but I think it's sort of like bears listening a couple times through and yeah, you kind of get lost in it a little bit. You can sort of let the track sort of fade one into the next. And it's actually written that way, I mm. think so that the orchestrations kind of blend together so that that Celeste um, takes you from the first track oh. into the next track. Okay. And then it sort of mood indigo opens up sort of after the songs already started. So you realize, Oh wait, we're on the second track already. And then the whole thing kind of blends together. And in fact, one of the reasons why I also think of this as a song cycle, almost in the classical sense, is that um, it's a, one of those albums where if you can you can end it and if it plays on a loop, the the song the the first track starts again without there being any sort of really abrupt notice oh. so it's almost like this loop that can just like keep going, like like yeah. this stage okay. of depression where he's up at yeah. night and it just kind of keeps looping back on it Tim, i i want to bring this i had, I had thought of this before and i was i was not going to share it but i it was thinking about i was starting to wonder if there was kind of some intention of it almost being like ambient music where like the definition of the best definition i've heard of ambient music is that it's something you can you know listen to or not listen to at any point in there where you go, like, if you choose to, like, sit there and really get into it, you can. If you choose to let it go in the background, you can. And that had, like, I, I could see this having the kind of... That's yeah. This described it right now. I think that there might be something there. That reminds me of something that always bugs me is if you, back when there were record stores, um, and I guess there are now, but there you are. would often find... I was at the record store two days ago. I was, okay. too. <laughs> Not the same record store, but still. Um, but I would often, like... 
try to find Sinatra and some of the other crooners recordings and they often like because they're not jazz in the more like hardcore definition right. they end up get thrown getting thrown into this bucket category of easy listening right. which i absolutely hate that yeah, term yeah but it does sort of have some of what you're talking about that ambient music quality to it mm-hmm. where you can kind of and i do think that's part of the the strength, if you can call it that, of this album is that if you are in that mood that you want to listen to 16 sad songs in a row... Yeah. <laughs> and first of all, good best of luck to you. Yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> I'm so sorry. What happened to you? People, is what I would say. We care about you. We love you. Just, you know. <laughs> you might just be a classical music fan, because for me, this is the other thing you guys were talking about. Like, it didn't even strike me as, like, a big deal that it was 16. Like, I'm, as a singer, like, singing opera or singing art song, leader is the mm. fancy German term. Like, that's all we do is yeah. sing sad songs, you know? Like, yeah. we, we get, like, one happy song for every 10 sad songs, and we're like, that was a really up-tempo, you know, recital you gave. Well, that was, like, that was, like, 62 beats a minute, my God. You right. Know? <laughs> Yeah. Settle down, Tchaikovsky. Come on. Right, exactly. <laughs> so maybe it's just how I'm wired. But, um, yeah, oh, I think I wanted to say one other thing, which was I also am finding more and more this newfound respect lyrically for Lorenz Hart. Mm. And he, um, Rogers and Hart have three of the 16 tracks, more than any other songwriting team. Okay. Um, and Lorenz Hart died fairly young. He apparently was under five feet tall. And... Um, considered himself um, sort of physically um, unattractive to the point that, like, a lot of his songs, if you look at his um, his output, um, everything from My Funny Valentine to um, the songs on here, like, It Never uh, Entered My Mind and Dancing on the Ceiling, are all about, like, this lost love. But there's something about Lorenz Hart's lyrics that always have this wry sort of sarcastic stinger mm. like there's a sting in there where it's like it's not just mopey it's like there's this little aggressive edge like a little bit of like anger under the surface and so i think one of the things that i hear in these songs is is the like what's happening under the surface on any given song sometimes um the songs are clearly just despair but mm. other times there's like a little bit of like rage hidden underneath that cool sort of frozen exterior it's sort of like um again one of the reasons why i think of vinterize with this is there are songs in that um song cycle where it's talking about the frozen landscape but the the singer comparing his heart to the frozen landscape but also the like the the hot tears that are welling up inside him and wanting to like mm. melt the entire winter. So there's something there where yeah. it's just sort of hot like, tears, I know it's, it's over the top. It's over the top German romanticism for sure. That I think Boom. like, when, especially when you hear it in translation, you're sort of like, this is ridiculous. But again, that's sort of like, that's where I'm coming from. With a all lot right. Of so, this. so with all that in mind, Sam, uh, you know, we know our, uh, Jake and I sound like we were pretty similar. Jake, I think, expressed his thoughts and concerns more eloquent than me, but we ended up with a pretty close score. Yeah. You rate this. this uh, yeah. This Get, give us your rating. It sounds like you're okay. you're more enamored than than us. So, so let me just say this first, which is. Um, I've been a huge Sinatra fan since I was in high school, um, and I sometimes call him my first voice teacher because mm-hmm. I just sort of sang along with so many of his songs in high school before taking any formal lessons that mm-hmm. I really feel 
um, like I kind of shaped vocally around him a little bit, sort of yeah. learning to do that. Um, but with that said, I actually didn't listen to this album until just when uh, you sort of approached me about being on the podcast. Oh. Um, so for me, this is like I'm coming to this album with that nostalgic love of Sinatra, but almost coming from that more classical vein where like my my classical brain wants to sort of fit it into something outside of just a more like popular music realm, if that makes sense. So I'm going to give it of a strong four, which might be whoa, a little high. I'm whoa. even like considering putting it down to 3.5, but I'm going to stick with four. Wow. And, and it certainly doesn't get any higher than that because of the same, um, the same deficits that you guys already mentioned, the, mm-hmm. the monochromatic sort of element of it. But to me, I, the reason I rate it as highly as, as I do is because I feel like he's able to sustain that long running time of similar songs without truly repeating himself in my mind. Okay. If it, if it actually got repetition, it's right on the edge. Like one more song, I think, and the whole Jenga tower collapses. So <laughs> that's why it's getting that high of a rating, but it's, it's Seven, it, I definitely understand. Many. 17 yeah. is just too many. 17, is, out, 17 wow. is outrageous. 16, just right. <laughs> you never know. Well, Tim, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, absolutely. Thoughts with us. This, this is very enlightening. Totally. Uh, next episode, we are going to be continuing our theme of the pre-rock, pre-1955, but going a little farther back um, to music that was recorded between 1927 and 1929 Whoa. that wasn't uh, put on any kind of compilation until I think the first one was the 80s. But we're looking at an artist by the name of Washington Phillips who did some kind of soul, bluesy music, uh, and the particular uh, compilation we'll be looking at is Washington Phillips and his Manzarine Dream, which mm. I believe is just released in Great 20s. name. Great name. So I'll be leading us all on that, and uh, until next time, this has been Louder Than Sound. Thanks from all of us.